This is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a program about international business and globalization and the effects these have had on our life, our work and our travel over recent decades. Today on Interlinks, we're going to be taking a deeper dive into the world of the supply chain with a couple of colleagues of mine from the Supply Chain Special Interest Group at the Society for the Advancement of Consulting. And they'll be joining me from the West Coast of the US and from Australia. So we're going to be talking about innovation in manufacturing and the implications for supply chains in the present and the future. So specifically, uh, how manufacturing companies have been coping with the volatility and disruption over recent years and how this is shaping their strategies for the future. How the industrial internet of things or industry 4.0 as it's sometimes called, is affecting where and how things are made in the world and what the future might hold. And how the digitization of manufacturing means that there will be an increased blurring of the lines between product-based businesses and services-based businesses. So to discuss all of these topics, I'm delighted to be joined by Diane Garcia. She's the president of Lorraine Consulting in Portland, Oregon, on the west coast of the US. Welcome, Diane. Thank you, Patrick. And David Ogilvie, uh, principal at David Ogilvie Consulting in Queensland, Australia. Welcome, David. Thank you, Patrick. So uh, maybe just to start, to ease into it, what's going on in uh, your part of the world, guys, in terms of uh, vaccines, in terms of opening, in terms of the economy? So what's the situation in Australia, David? Uh, well, we've obviously handled the COVID situation quite well, Patrick. We've uh, we had some, you know, some some breakouts in Melbourne. As a country in general, we've handled it quite well. I guess primarily because we're an island. Uh, so it was quite easy for us to, to just lock our lock our borders and 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 in many ways uh, stop the, the the virus from from entering the country. Um, the majority of our cases have been really in uh, quarantine. So we've discovered them when they've come into the country. They've stayed in hotel quarantine, uh, and it hasn't really got into the community all that much. Uh, Melbourne had sort of had a, had a bad patch there for a while, but they now have had that under control. So, from from the virus perspective, you know we've really coped uh, really well compared to the US and the UK and some of the other places around and and the globe. Uh, from a, from a vaccine perspective. Um, our rollout is probably a lot slower than anybody else's. Again, because we're a an island, I guess, and we are reliant on the rest of the of the globe to to provide us with the supply. We do have some manufacturing capability here. Um, CSL are manufacturing the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine here here in this country, uh, but that production has not hit full production yet. So we do have a supply problem, and that has constrained the, the ability of the government to, to vaccinate the population. So we are a little bit behind the curve as far as the uh, as far as the uh, vaccines concerned. And the economy? Um, we're we're going great guns. Um, most of the businesses that I I deal with uh, are doing you know quite well. Um, the uh, businesses that have been affected in many ways have been places like um, uh, travel agents. So, and they're travel-related. So the hotel industry, the tourist industry, uh, the restaurants and cafes have been pretty heavily um, uh, hit. But now that the country's opening up again, um, you know, in general, we're, we're operating under, under a normal circumstance. My town, my, my city of Brisbane recently had a, had a second lockdown, but it was only for three days. Uh, we've had to wear masks for uh, nearly two weeks, but outside of that, we were operating normally. So, you know, people were just going about their business. Uh, and so in this country, uh, the economy is doing really, really well. 
Sounds like uh, sounds like paradise. I mean, we've been in lockdown here in Ireland for I think just over a hundred days now, pretty much since Christmas. So uh, in comparison to yourselves, um, you know, we're 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 way back. So Diane, what's going on in um, your part of the world in the northwest of the of the U.S. in terms of the vaccines and the opening and the economy? Yeah, well. Overall, in the U.S., the, the vaccines are, are rolling out. It's really dependent upon state by state. In the Pacific Northwest, I would say it was a little rough to get started. Um, similar to what David was mentioning, the supply issue was you know, really the cause. It, not as many vaccines were being distributed uh, to the states and, and therefore, you know, just couldn't, couldn't get them out to, um, you know, to people. But um you know, depending on where you are located in the U.S., uh, you, you probably already have your second dose and, and have a first dose. So, for example, um, those who are located in uh, Arizona, uh, Glendale State Farm Arizona uh, Stadium was actually doing very well with distributing, uh, receiving supply and, and actually more impressively, their operational perspective and how they really ran a 24-7 um, operation to distribute these vaccines as quickly as possible um, just just to support you know as as much as they could and uh, yeah I actually volunteered at the uh, state farm and uh, in exchange uh, received a vaccine and it was a sight to be seen for sure I, I do think that across the U.S. you are seeing uh, plenty plenty of vaccines being distributed and uh, along or alongside with the the opening and reopening of states so. Things are, are are bustling in the U.S. here. So there's a lot of uh, optimism. I see when I, you know, when I look at the Wall Street Journal and some of the other American media uh, in terms of the economy, people seem to be quite upbeat. Is that correct? I, I would agree with that. I think there's a lot of travel in place. I think there's uh, actually companies are scrambling. Those who have been hit pretty hard, the hospitality, the, the airline industry are, are really struggling to, to meet this spike or increase. I think a lot of people receive their vaccines between the February and March timeframe, and uh, a lot of people are ready to get back to it. And so you just have a lot of activity, a lot of pent up demand that we're starting to see. Okay. So just coming now maybe to our, our topic uh, today. So if we think about what's happened over the last number of years, say, if you cast your mind back, say, to Fukushima and how that impacted supply chains. And then we had this uh, Icelandic volcano in the ash cloud. You'll remember that as well. And then we had the U.S.-China uh, tensions and trade wars. And we had Brexit. We had a financial crash. Now we've COVID. So all of this has kind of happened in the last 10 years or so. And overlaid on that, we have all of this other stuff that's going on, uh, you know, geopolitical changes, regulatory changes, uh, ecological, social governance, uh, and technology. And it's all going on uh, at, at the one time. So we, I think three of us work a lot with manufacturers of different types and obviously in different parts of the world. So what have you guys noticed already about how all of that is, is affecting manufacturers, either ones that you have worked with or, or just what you see um, and what you pick up? So uh, Dave, what's your, what's your take on it? Well, Patrick, um the, the COVID um, situation has has a, a major impact on, on shipping. I think, as we all know, so you know, containers are very difficult to get. And I, I think the last time we, had, we we got together for for your podcast, we were talking about the cost of containers and the availability of containers and so forth. Clearly, the the, the shipping um, in the sewers the other day uh, didn't help. I, just on a quick side note, I was very interested to watch the. Um, 
uh, you know, that shipping uh, tracking app that, that, that's available and the amount of uh, volume of ships that were in, in the Persian Gulf and so forth just as the, as the blockage occurred. And, and it was amazing to watch how quickly those shipping organisations pivoted their routes and so forth because very quickly uh, the, the next couple of days were showing that there were hardly any ships of art, you know, sitting there waiting. So, you know, but that is, that is a, a signal or that there are some serious um, challenges ahead uh, in the shipping space around getting containers, the cost of shipping containers, uh, the, shot, the, the cost of being able to get, get any air freight and so forth. Um, I think this is going to be a major input to uh, an inflationary spiral that's starting to move. So I, I think uh, going forward, uh, the executives uh, around manufacturing firms are going to have to start getting used to uh, shifting costs and managing in an inflationary environment, something they haven't had to do for quite some time. Mm. It's interesting. Um, the rates for 40-foot containers from China to Europe up until last year was something like $1,500, $2,000. And we're getting spot prices quoted now, something like $8,000. So, and then we had, then we had Suez, obviously, which is a whole uh, disruption on top of that. So some people are beginning to look, uh, and this kind of surprised me a little bit, but apparently it's more practical than than it sounds, is bringing in containers by rail from the Far East into Europe. Um, So there's a growing business there. It's more expensive, obviously, than, um sea freight but not as much of a difference as it used to be and also the time is 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 quicker um and the, these trains come into germany and then they come into intermodal stations and then they move the containers on to ports that they ship out of rotterdam if they're going elsewhere or they go by rail to other parts of europe so there's a there's a big shift going on there it seems so diane what, what are you seeing then all of these changes over recent years what what, what does it mean um, and how have manufacturers been reacting to it in your part of the world yeah i would i agree with david i think the shipping and logistics uh, world has has just gone haywire in trying to understand and bring all of those pieces in in with these uh, decisions and how do we secure supply and how do we make sure we have a, a steady flow of what we need coming into our manufacturing facilities it's definitely a big topic. Um, I think overall what I'm seeing, you know, companies are really, really focused on responsiveness and growth, along with obviously customer service as has been the focus. So I think that there's a lot of, of my clients I'm working with who are working on how do they maintain growth? How do they increase their company growth? And what I'm seeing really is that they're digging into their systems and they're digging into their data and they're realizing that there's a lot of data that they need to not necessarily clean up, but build processes around some data governance around it so that they can support these systems and support these new e-commerce platforms that they're investing in and support other platforms that they're investing in. So I think that what they're really trying to figure out is how do we wrap our arms around the data and how do we make the data sustainable so it's good. It's good for our, our business intelligence reporting it's good so we know where, where our product is and we have the visibility of our you know, orders with our suppliers, visibility of where things are in the facility. So I've seen, I'm seeing a big push in, in the cleanup of data and these processes around the data. It's, it's, it's interesting, actually. I was talking uh, with a client and we're, we're working on a, on a project, which is an expansion project. And part of the expansion is to kind of quantify how much inventory they're going to be looking at as their as their business grows and one of the limitations 
is actually determining a proper baseline because of the quality of the data or the lack of quality of the data mm -hmm. that, that, that they have. And it's quite surprising sometimes when you come across um, companies with lots of resources and how that has slipped through or been overlooked or the focus was, was elsewhere. So you, Dave, you do a lot of work in the ERP space and that relies on, on data. So what, you know, what's going on there? I, I find in ERP systems, um, if you're looking for transactional data, that's all fine. It's all there, the quantities and so on. But if you're looking for anything physical in terms of, you know, how much inventory is this, is it this much stuff, you know, like, uh, uh, the size of an orange, or is it this much stuff, you know, the size of a container? It's very hard to find the, the data in the systems. What's going on? <laughs> Actually, a lot of the ERP systems today allow the volumetric uh, capability. So, you know, from a warehousing perspective, that's generally covered. So as long as the, the organization's got the, the, the business discipline to, to be capturing all of that information uh, at its source, which is obviously from the suppliers, uh, the system can leverage that information and, and you can make good use of it. Um, but I agree with Diana, a lot of companies are reviewing um, the data that they need and, and uh, where it's coming from and how clean it is, uh, particularly considering the reliability or, more importantly, the lack of reliability uh, recently of, of supply. Um, you know, the, the lean inventory holding techniques that a lot of companies have, have uh, uh, potentially misused over the years are being revisited. Um, I think there's going to be a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction from some executives and they're just going to uh, fill their warehouses. So warehousing uh, constraints will, will come into play as you know, organisations uh, all start to hold more inventory because of the reliability issues that they're currently uh, experiencing and those sorts of things. So, you know, but from an ERP perspective, the, the data is there. It can be leveraged. Uh, whether it is or not is another is another issue, and that's one of the biggest problems with ERP implementations, of course, is it's, it's human behaviour that causes these issues as opposed to the, the technology, so to speak. And so it's the culture of those businesses around whether they keep their data clean, whether they leverage it correctly. Um, that's, a, that's a whole different discussion in many spaces. Yeah, yeah. So at the end of the day, it's not so much a limitation on the systems. It, it just goes back to old-fashioned diligence and taking the trouble to go and um, measure things and put the data into the systems. Well, and I think, Patrick, what you have going on here is is exactly what you're saying. And in addition, the technology is advancing at just such a rapid pace and, and these systems and their ability to connect and talk with each other. You know, we're, we're really learning how to bring all of these systems together. The smart, the smart factories, the machine learning, the Internet of Things, there's so much capability. Uh, it's just trying to learn learn fast enough uh, how to use and then and then on top of that, where do you store the data? How do you set up your data uh, maps to align with your supply chain design? You know, that's all all new territory for us. So it's 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 very 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 on topic with the innovation here and and how these companies are are working to solve solve these and and deal with just brand new uh, technologies never seen before. Yeah, I I I did. Um a course in 2017, Industry 4.0. And they were talking to us about all of these technologies that were there. And I guess they've moved on now. So you've got things like advances in sensor technology, you know, in machine tools, say being able to pick up data regarding machining of components and so on. Mm -hmm. You've got 3D printing, you've got um, robotics and collaborative robots working hand in hand with, with people, uh, artificial intelligence, big data analytics, automated guided vehicles, automation and warehouse. So you've got all of this capability 
but uh, th there seems to be a kind of a lack of, of a way to tie it all together or to know where to start or what, what is the strategy. So if I said to you for a minute, just play a little game here. If we cast our eyes or our minds, say, 10 years into the future, and we say all of this comes to fruition and lives up to its potential, let's just play a little game of what, what that might look like. And then we come back to the beginning here where we are in 2021 and think might, what might have to start happening now. So what would be your vision, Diana, say, of a manufacturing plant in 2030 uh, where these technologies have been leveraged to their full extent? Well, I think, Patrick, that's a that's a big question. <laughs> so I, I think I it, just off the cusp, I think I would say I've, I picture a very clean factory, a very efficient factory, a very responsive factory. And, and these machines are uh, are utilized. But really, we have our experts and our, our skilled labor who are utilizing these machines. And, and really, how do we shift and, and leverage and optimize all of these capabilities based on the changing conditions. So who knows, you know, what what will happen in 10 years in terms of another virus or whatever whatever our new pandemic or equivalent may be, but I think it's really about the responsiveness and our ability to say okay, what are the changing conditions? What do our customers want? And then these factories really responding from that. Mm. So presumably then you know, if you had a manufacturing network they would be able to communicate with each other in, in real time. Artificial intelligence would be working away there in terms of the settings on machine tools or the amount of inventory that's in the network here or there. If there's a natural disaster or if there's a, an outbreak of a pandemic or something like that, you'd see that kind of feeding through and adjusting almost in real time the uh, supply chain configurations. Um, something something like that. So, so David, how do we get from where we are now where people can't be bothered to put in that this thing measures uh, 10 centimetres by 15 centimetres to an all singing, all dancing, responsive in real time supply chain in 2030? Well, Patrick, that's, that's an interesting question. And, and, and I think my answer comes back to, again, it's about people, not the technology. I, th I, I think we only got to look at the share market, for example. There are so many automated trading platforms and, and systems that, that uh, share market trades, you know, they, they are buying and selling on the nuances of a, of a shift in price. And uh, when that happens and the computers start to take over, we get massive reactions because there are so many traders, um, uh, automatic uh, systems kicking in together and we're getting these big spikes in the share market uh, as a result of these sort of automatic trading platforms, I think that's a precursor to what could potentially happen in, in, a, in a manufacturing environment. So if we think we've got the bullwhip effect now with, with, with the way things react, uh, that could potentially be significantly worse if, if all of these things are automated. Um, I, I think we, we need some real intelligence as opposed to artificial intelligence. Yes, they can help us with, with um, some, some demand forecasting and the, the big data analytics can help us uh, pick different trends and all of those sorts of things. But at the end of the day, uh, if you've got two different organisations with two different cultures that are dealing with these things differently, there's going to be as many challenges getting two companies to work together uh, with all of this automation because they're going to use it differently uh, as we do today. So I, I still don't think you can take the human factor out of this, even though all of this data will be visible and, and, and easily exchanged. Um, 
uh, you know, that, that, that just makes things happen a lot quicker and it makes whatever human reactions happen, happen a lot quicker. And therefore, I think we're going to have bigger spikes and, and potential, uh, you know, quicker shifts uh, in, in things happening. So uh, it's not the panacea that everybody thinks it's going to be, I think you'll find. Yeah, I was reading a McKinsey report on Industrial Internet of Things, and they were saying very much that these projects are probably one third technology and two thirds process organization and, mm-hmm. and people. Uh, so that's one aspect of it. And I guess another aspect, if you're here in 2021, you've got all of these technologies out there. You've got the cloud, you've got edge computing, you've got ERP systems, and it's kind of to say to yourself, what do I prioritize among all of these opportunities? Where do I where do I start? So, for example, uh, Diane, if you, if if you, your your clients in terms of all of this stuff, where are they starting, or what are they prioritizing? How are they going about it? How are they facing it? How are they thinking about it? Well, I, I would I think the focus is always where do you start in the design or in in the case of, of ever evolving conditions, how do you redesign and focusing on the redesign of your supply chain and what are your customers wanting? Where where are your customers located? Where do you see gaps? So there's usually assessments of supply and assessments of how well the, the demand side and the supply side are connected. And really, how do we keep up with the customer? That's really where they're starting. I mean, there's a lot of things within that, but that's typically where these companies are, are starting and where they're deciding where to invest in, in in areas and how do they innovate in these areas to meet these demands. And, and what about you, Dave? I guess it, being involved in the ERP world is where a lot of the, uh, you know, the thinking about technology is going on, where the IT people are focused and probably where the non-IT business people think that the solutions are being worked on but is there more is there a gap and you know where is that whole uh, ERP thing going I think the big gap is between the years the reality is that the technology is is around to uh, available today to do all of these things but I am constantly amazed about how much people are expecting from an ERP systems and from from digital uh, digitalization digital transformation all those sorts of lovely consulting buzzwords mm. I am constantly amazed about how many companies aren't doing business 101. They don't have um, sound uh, inventory management practices. They aren't doing uh, regular cycle counts. They, their inventory accuracy is poor. They're, they're not doing any demand forecasting, or if they are, their forecasting uh, accuracy is very poor. You know, the, the, a lot of the foundational pieces that bring all of these things together are missing. And that, to me, comes back to human discipline, and it comes back to, the, to, to what's between the ears and how the, how the individual executives and then how the company thinks. Um, so a lot of those foundational building blocks are missing. So while all of the, the blue sky talk about how technology uh, is going to, to, to innovate um, the manufacturing uh, uh, industry, the reality is some of those one-on-one blocks need to be in place and consistently in place. You know, not, not just done for this year, but they need to be able to have good, accurate data, i.e. your inventory levels, from day one ongoing. And if, if those disciplines aren't in place, then this is all going to fall apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I completely agree. Yeah, or, or it's not going to uh, unfold as 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 quickly as people think, or there will be exa- exemplars that people look up to, but lots of companies, as you say, still have a lot of just the basics to get their heads around. So uh, I guess that's going to keep the likes of us busy for quite a while, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> um, this idea of products to uh, services, and I guess particularly in uh, in a world where, 
we want to reuse, recycle, and we want to be sustainable. So our use and throw away um, culture is probably something of the past or will be within uh, the, the future years. So if, you, if you're not selling a new washing machine every four years, um, maybe you're going to be selling a suite of services with your washing machine forever, essentially. Um, what kind of things do you envisage or, or, or see where, you know, where today we're used to just buying a product that in the future, we might be buying a product and a bundle of services. What do you think, Dave? Uh, I think that's always been good business. Uh, I think sustainability and 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 waste management has always been good business. I think um, the designing uh, products uh, so that you can reuse uh, the, the the scrap parts and, and 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 the cradle to grave components of manufacturing, I think has always been good business. So I think there's more of it. And um, the big question, I guess, is particularly considering uh, where I think we're stepping into an inflationary environment. Uh, it's will the people be prepared to pay for those services and how much will they be prepared to pay? Mm. And are they profitable at that at the value that people are prepared to pay for them? Um, and that's probably the question for me. Yeah. What do you, what do you think, Diane, in terms of this? It's like I've seen things like um, cleaning um, machines and um, rather than buying just the, the machine, you're buying all kinds of um, information and analytics about what places get more dirty than other places where the cleaning effort should be um, assigned. So imagine instead of buying 20 scrubbers and washers, uh, you're actually buying machines, but in a service package where we're actually analyzing your whole cleaning uh, regime. And uh, really it's about more efficient use of, of, of uh, cleaning materials, more efficient use of the machines. It's a different concept, different sales, different approach. How do you how do you see all that happening happening and developing in the future? Well, I think it's exciting. I I think personally, what I see is is a very optimistic view with the abilities to say, okay, where is the waste in the process? How do we, you know, if we can identify the waste, if we have these systems and we really are using them to gain visibility into our processes and our supply chain, we can see the waste and we can bring that waste back in and reuse and, and try to, you know, take it as far as we, we can and, and not bring so much waste, to, you know, and bring sustainability into the globe. Mm. Uh, your example actually was reminding me of my toothbrush. Uh, I, I can get all kinds of information when I brush my teeth now and it connects to my <laughs> phone and <laughs> tells me how well of a job I did. So I think wherever there's a product, there's a service, like David said, it's just good business. I think companies, uh, you know, are just seeing the fact that their customers are are more, you know, just in general, I think they're they're requesting more of, of how do we protect the planet? How do we eliminate some of this waste? How do we uh, utilize these systems? And to your point, you know, a lot of these factories can take advantage of this and, and build some of that technology and visibility into their into their machinery and uh, and really start actually utilizing all of this technology for the better. So it's I'm very op- optimistic about where this is all heading. There's a lot of good potential there. Dave, mm-hmm. you want to say something? Yeah, I, th- I think we've got an exemplar there too. Like, I mean, didn't Rolls-Royce change their business model uh, from, from, from for the jet engines uh, around that, right? So rather than making the sales, they, they were leasing the engines or they were yep. hiring the engines out and they're they providing the services and they're doing all the data monitoring for, for the maintenance and all that sort of thing. So I think we've got an exemplar for that sort of model that's already been out there in, in Rolls-Royce. Uh, but it also shows the vulnerability too, because there was talk 
not that long ago during the COVID um, uh, problems, the pandemic, that uh, Rolls-Royce were on the on the edge from a financial perspective. They were close to going under uh, because of the business model that they had. And um, so I think I think we've got a precursor out there that we can use as a case study. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I've, I've seen as well uh, a model of uh, a company that manufactures robots for warehousing. And rather than sell you the actual robots, they sell you almost like transactional models. So these, these these robots pick orders and so on. So they're literally selling you the order picking solution as opposed to robots, and it's charged on a transactional basis, like a service, rather than uh, a capital investment. So it, it's a it's a it's a big it's a big big change. And I guess the data and the technology is making that possible. So I guess it, it, it's amazing how quickly the time flies, guys, because. <laughs> We, we could go on, but we've literally come to the end. We've run out of road here. So um, pleasure talking to you both again uh, today. Many thanks for, for being here. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank you, Patrick. Thanks, thanks also to our listeners. And remember that if you would like to know more about how I can help you to formulate and implement international business strategies that deliver, check out my blog on albalogistics.com and my book, International Supply Chain Relationships, which you can pick up on Amazon, Google Books or Apple Books. Thank you for listening and keep well until the next time.